The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And these past few months of studying this first part of Revelation, I've been asked several times if I believe that we're nearing the time of Christ's return. And it is agreed that there are many signs um, that look like the problems of the last times. This year we've seen terrible disasters with record-breaking hurricanes, Uh, Earthquakes in Mexico, wildfires in California and Oregon, certainly the firestorm that we saw here in our own county. There's political unrest within our nation, uh, problems with North Korea and with Russia, and then, of course, the usual Islamic threats. And then on top of that, there's rampant sexual perversion, there's shootings in schools and in churches, and we have not seen times like these. And the question is, is that an indicator that it's time for Christ to return? And the truth is, I don't know. I I don't think that I can answer that question because there have been plenty of date setters who have looked at the terrible times of the past and said they were convinced that Christ was coming, that it was near, and yet those happened hundreds of years ago and Christ still has not come. But if I was looking for a sign that Christ will return... I think that more than look at those things, that I would look at the condition of the church. What are churches doing? How theologically and morally strong are our churches? Now, in the past, the church was persecuted heavily, heavily enough that the church was driven underground, but that church stood the test of of the, the trials that came and they withstood the compromises, and they would not give up their faith. And that church that we know about from history has been a model for us and for generations to come. But today, as we look across the landscape of our churches, there's, there are few models of faith and virtue. There are very few churches that stand for the Word of God and preach the Gospel of Christ. And the Scriptures do say that that is a characteristic of the last times. That when it's practically impossible to find a good church and to find a good pastor, does that mean that the Lord is now winding down the world for His return? Well, Paul gave this warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. He said they will not endure sound doctrine. Instead, they'll seek for preachers that will soothe them with their sweet platitudes and preachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And what is it that people want to hear? Well, they want to know how good they are. They want to know how they can enjoy themselves. They want to know how things can be easy. How can they continue to live in sin and believe that there's no punishment for those sins? Paul also said that they would be turned to fables. And is there a bigger fable that's taught in Christianity today that there should be no suffering, that God intends for you to be rich, 
And that you can live by faith in such a way that you can order from God what you want. Whatever you want, God is obligated to give that to you. In other words, you can be God. And that's the drivel that's preached Sunday after Sunday in the largest church in America. And thousands of churches worldwide are sucked in wanting to be a church that is just like that one. I don't know when Christ will return. I'm not going to set a date. But I believe it could be today. Or it could be a thousand years from today. I don't know. But I do say this. I live in the hope that the indicators that we see going on in our world today is that Christ will return soon. But still, I remind you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus dictated seven letters to the Apostle John to send to seven churches, and five out of those seven churches were in serious problems. They were in such deep problems that they were in danger of the Lord removing their status as churches. And I don't know what to make of those percentages, but that means that 70% of those churches were either headed into apostasy or they were in apostasy. And I don't know how, that, how high that percentage must be before Christ says, that's enough. And there are many people in the past who used to believe in what is called post-millennialism, And that is a doctrine that says that the church will grow stronger as time goes on and in the last days the church will become so strong and the gospel will permeate the world so so widely that the whole world will be one to Christ. And that viewpoint of the end times has been mostly abandoned today because it seems that things are getting worse and that would be very depressing if we were pinning our hopes on the world getting better before Christ can come. So if it's dependent upon that, we have no hope because no doubt things are getting worse and churches are getting worse. Now these letters that we read in Revelation tell us what Christ will do when the church no longer identifies with salvation in Jesus Christ alone and is no longer teaching that those who die without Jesus Christ are headed for an eternity in hell. And then to another aspect of Christ's coming, the day will surely happen when the last person in this world will be witnessed to and the last one to be saved will be saved. And when there are none left, and when the last one that God has determined to be saved, the church is no longer needed. But until that day happens, the Bible tells us that we are to be the light of the world. And when that employment ends, the church is not needed. Now as we look at again at Revelation 3 and the church at Sardis, we know that Christ has not reached the point of shutting everything down. And we're never to think that He has, that that He's reached that place where He's not going to save anybody else. We're never to think that we are in such bad times and we're in the last times that nobody will be saved. And so God is going to button everything up and we're to sit still and wait for Christ's return. We're never to do that. We are to live as if Christ will come today and the urgency of it, telling people to believe in Christ and our own lives to be lived for Christ. We're to live in that urgency that it would come today and we are to keep on working as if it would be a thousand years away. So always we are to be salt and light to the world. And as hard as it may be to stand for Christ in a world that doesn't want Him, we still must do it. And we can't join with the world to win the world. We have to separate ourselves morally and theologically from the world. And we must always obey Christ's commandments and be pure and holy as God requires. And this is the message 
that he gave to the church at Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. The text of this letter is in verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 3. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that have the seven stars, or seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If thou therefore shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name, out his name, out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now in the past messages, our method of, of giving a, an exposition of this text is to ask questions. And the first question that I asked was, what is the reputation of this church? And we find the reputation in verse number 1, and we can extrapolate from what we read here that this was a busy church, it is an active church, this is a church involved in their community, and there must have been much public service because to the culture that was around this church, it was a church that appeared to be alive. But as far as being a beacon for Jesus Christ and standing up for Him and standing against the culture that they were in, that was a battle that was lost in Sardis. They were worthless as far as that was concerned. The light of the gospel had been nearly extinguished in this church. Now we notice the contrast in the first verse that Christ is the Lord of the seven stars. And stars are brilliant. Stars are bright. Stars are, are shining. But this is a church that is not shining. And like stars in a distant galaxy that had burned out, their demise was not yet known to them. Their failure to shine prompted the commands that come in these next verses. Because of their lackluster luster condition, then we have to ask the second question, and that is, what are they required to do? What does the Lord want them to do to get that shine back, to have the glory of Christ in the church once again? How is the light going to be turned back on? How will they become useful to Christ? Well, the answer is in verses 2 and 3, and this is the recipe for the revival of the church. Most importantly, the Word says they must watch. And that's the key word in this section of the text. Watchfulness. To watch. That's the most common command that we find in the Bible for the New Testament church. This is our most common command. To watch. We're to watch out for Satan. We're to watch out for our holiness and to guard it. We are commanded to watch our sanctification. We're told to watch for heresy that infiltrates the church. We're told to watch out for preachers that smile and will no longer speak of sin. And we're told to watch for the coming of the Lord. We're to keep on looking, hoping that any moment Christ may come. And the Bible uses that imminent return of Christ as the incentive that we are to live clean lives so that He doesn't creep up on us unawares and will be ashamed because of the way that we live. 
Now, we talked about the keys to revival in the last message, and there is still more for us to consider how that will be done before we finish out this lesson on the promises of the church, with promises of the church. The final instructions are very simple for us to grasp. They're given to us in the text. And I've called these the instructions for survival. How is the church going to survive? Now first, in verse number 2, the Lord says that they must strengthen the things that remain. And so number one in our survival list is that they must reinforce. There was still some hope for this church because whatever remained in them kept them still as one of the Lord's churches. There wasn't yet enough here that the Lord decided to remove their status as a church, else the Lord wouldn't have chosen for them to receive this letter. He doesn't have any interest in churches that look nothing like Him, so something He saw in this church was was to be salvaged. Something could be salvaged. And the text really doesn't explain to us what those things are. It just says, by the grace of God, there is something right in this church. And whatever it is, they needed to shore that up, they need to reinforce it, so they don't sink further into decay. Now we're sure that when a Christian begins to backslide, that what he must do is to dig his heels in to keep from sliding further. The deeper in sin that you go, the harder and the longer is the road to recovery. And church members need to lead uh, to learn this lesson that before yielding to the first temptation, you understand it's going to lead to another. And if you give in to that first sin, the second becomes easier. Well, the first glance at work turns into flirtation. Then the flirtation turns into more conversation. And then the conversation turns into spending time, and then on it goes. And as the Word of God says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Sin is very easy to get into, but very hard to get out of. Sin is a natural thing for us. We, we have a nature that wants to sin. Sin is very hard for us to resist. But the Bible has given us a formula for resisting sin. First, it's to avoid that temptation. And if you avoid the first temptation, the second one has less effect. In very simple terms, James wrote, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And so this is a very simple principle. One less vice allowed is one less vice that you need to conquer. And why is it that Satan flees those who resist him? Because Satan does not have time to waste on Christians that will not do what he wants. And the reason that he doesn't is because Satan's time is short. Did you know it? Satan is on a leash. God has him on a leash. His time is short. And one of these days, God's going to reel him in, and there's going to be the end of Satan. And so what Satan has to do right now is to make hay while the sun shines. So he's not going to spend time on Christians that live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to think this through. Who is it that Satan bothers? Well, he comes into the church where those who indulge him. He comes in where he has allies. He doesn't flee that church. He doesn't flee those Christians, but he makes camp with them. He comes and he stays in the church, and he stays and he schemes, 
as long as he gets from what he wants from those that are willing helpers. And so we must embrace and reinforce every good grace to keep Satan out. Now the next thing that this passage says to us to rebuild the church and get it back on track again is to remember. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Remember what you got from the Lord. And who can remember except those that are saved? Who can remember but those that have known the Lord and they have something to remember about what He did for them? He's speaking, of course, to the saved people that are in the church. For sure there were many tares. There were lost people that were in this church. There were many that were damaged wheat in the church. The tares can't remember anything because the Lord's never done anything for them. They're not His people. But the saved... Those who have received Christ have knowledge of Him. Their faith never goes away. You can't destroy the faith of a true Christian. Oh, they know the truth. And they know that God's plan for them is to return to the truth. To always go back to that faith that saved them. And so when you see a Christian that, gets, that backslides and begins to get away from the Lord, that faith that he has is still there. That faith is never going to go away. And he must return to that faith and be strong in that faith once again. And he must remain in that faith because that is the only faith that ultimately saves him. So notice that Jesus said, Remember how thou hast received. And I want you to remember something. I want you to remember what I've told you. Remember I've told you that the language of the Bible is not that we accept Christ as if we approve of Him, but we receive Christ as one who has been given by God's initiative to us. Salvation is not ours because we have good sense. We're, we're not especially good at evaluating the worth of the gospel as if we know something that others don't know. No, God's ways are always foolishness to us until God begins to work in us. And then He chooses to open the understanding of the foolish and bring the foolish to Him. And we are the ones who are saved out of that foolishness and we have received God's mercy and grace. We don't commend ourselves. We don't go to God and say, well, you should save me. Look how good I've been. Look who I am. No, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul wrote, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? And so everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you will be, is because God gave it. None of us can boast in what we do, because without Him we do nothing. And so we must remember this, that we never get caught up in our smug self-righteousness and look to self. We are what we are by the grace of God. And when we stray away from that dependence upon God, and when we choose our own path, that's when we become sardis. People that are no use to the Lord. Well, a good start for raising a dead church is to remember what God did in saving our unworthy souls. That God could have left us lifeless. He could have left us lost and doomed for hell because that's where we were headed. So you go back and you remember what you were and what it was that God brought you from. Now we have a great old hymn that we sing here and it's popular around the world for that matter, but we 
have considered for many years that this is the Baptist anthem, and that is the song Amazing Grace. That was written by John Newton, and he was before a very mean man. Before God saved him, he was a terrible man. But he learned what he was, and he learned what God did for him. And he was in the depths of sin so deeply that John Newton felt that he was this guilty, that he was guilty of being the one who raised the hammer himself and drove the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. Newton wrote many songs with the theme of being vile and destitute. In one stanza of another song, he wrote, Sure never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. And that reminds us of the gaze that God, that Christ gave to Peter when Peter denied him. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And John Newton felt that way about his sin. And the question for us is, can we believe that we were that vile? Can we believe what Newton believed? Can we believe that we were such sinners? Can we believe that it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross? If you know that, if you know that, if you're the one who did that, can you not help but be filled with gratitude and determination that you will serve Christ for what He did? So how cheap, how callous is that Christian who continues to sin? How ungrateful is the one who says, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, but will not stop living in the sin that Christ died for? You see, remembering is good. Remembering will shame you until you change. What is it that you were saved from? Remember the truth of the gospel. Remember that we were all depraved sinners, that we were all raised to life by a merciful and gracious God, and there was no cause in any of us that God should do it. It's the unmerited love of God for us that caused Him to save our souls. So the Word of God says here, in this letter, Jesus says to the church, Hold fast! Don't let that truth slip away from your consciousness. Keep that in front of your eyes always. Hold fast. And that's a term that comes from a word that means to guard. It means to keep it in custody. And so we are told to guard the truth and to guard the faith. In 1 Timothy, Paul said, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Same words are used as hold fast what's been committed to your trust. Paul regarded the gospel that way. He said he was entrusted with it. God gave it to him. He was responsible to deliver the message that God gave him to give. And you know something about that message? We don't have any authority to change it. And we don't have any authority to soften it. We don't have the authority to make it more palatable to people who hate it and will not receive it. And yet, this is what churches do. It's all about people's feelings. How do you feel about that message that I'm about to tell you? If you don't like it, well, I'll change it to where you do. I'll make it so it's more favorable to you. But the Word of God says that we're to tell people exactly as it is. We don't worry about sparing their feelings. We tell them they're wicked sinners. But we hear this, Oh, they feel too bad about themselves. People just feel too bad already, so let's don't tell them that. Let's give them a happy thing to believe. 
Folks, I, I believe that the Bible teaches that our sin is so heinous, there's none of us that feels too badly about ourselves. We'll never grasp how deeply that we have offended the righteous God. But let me tell you what people in today's church learn. I cleared this with uh, gender. He said that he wouldn't mind if I read a small part of an email that he sent me regarding a Christian friend who attends a liberal church. And gender disagreed with this man over how we should approach people with the gospel. And this man took no care for the doctrines of the church and who might use unbiblical methods of evangelism or which churches that might teach against the truth of God's Word, but rather his idea was we are to attract the world with a worldly means and get them to feel good about the gospel. And let me read to you with Gender's reply. Gender said, I explained to him that we must show people that they are sinners first, and then share the message of salvation, that we must share the truth that the Bible declares whether it offends people or not. And I read that. And I was never so proud of a member of Berean Baptist Church. And I thought, well, there was probably a time when gender might have agreed with that man. He never would have written those words. But the truth has opened his eyes. And so he remembered what he was taught here at Berean about the proper approach to evangelism. And so he says, we've got to tell people the truth no matter how badly that hurts. That's not our method. We didn't invent the method. That's Jesus and the apostles' method. And we're never going to improve on it. Paul said to Titus, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You know what gender is? He is a faithful Christian man remembering who he was. And he can tell his experience to others. And the truth convinces the gainsayers. Nothing but the truth will do it. That's God's method. And so you remember what you've been taught. You see, the day will come when you'll be in a conversation with someone, and at first, you'll not know what to say. Oh, I've encountered this with many Christians who've told me, I, I was talking to this person and I'm just a little bit confused. I, I don't know what to say to them. I don't know how to handle this. But I can tell you that the thing to do when you get in that situation, you'll find yourself there, is remember what you have been taught. That's all that you really need to do. Remember what you've been taught and use that. That's what Jesus told His disciples. He told them, He said, I've got to go away. I'm going to leave you. And then He said, all these things that I've taught you will come back to you. They'll come flooding back to your minds and the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. You see, He'll do that if you hold fast. If you're careful to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll not be caught off guard. You'll know what to say. And you can say it without the fear of being unpopular. Hold fast to your knowledge of sound doctrine. Now thirdly, he says, you must repent. You must repent. Now repentance is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity, and yet there's much confusion about its meaning. Some make repentance and faith synonymous. And what they do by making it synonymous is to take repentance out of the gospel because it's easier to deal with people if you don't confront them with sin. And so this is the message that you usually hear. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. The gospel is 
repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Repentance references sin. There must be a change about sin. We've got to change our minds about ourselves and about God. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. They're different doctrines, but you can't have one without the other. There is no such thing as a one-sided coin. And so salvation is two-sided. It's repentance and faith. And repentance is a duty after you're saved, just like perseverance in the faith, to keep on believing in Christ is a requirement for believers. The Christian life for all time until Christ comes is a life of repentance and faith. Now let me explain that to you. When we're saved, at that moment we repent of all of our sins, all of them, and we place our faith in Christ. And in that moment, all the sins that we have committed are forgiven. Now we can't repent of future sins because we don't yet know what they are, and if we did, then hopefully we'd never do them, and thus there wouldn't be a need of repentance. But we don't know those sins. And we do sin. We get into sin. We will sin. And so our repentance must be ongoing. Now, in repentance and faith, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We repent of our past sins with this prospect and with this hope by the promise of the Word of God that we will be forgiven of all future sins when we commit them. Our repentance will be ongoing and God continues to grant that repentance and our faith to live in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now we have a sinful body, we have a sinful nature, and we're not going to escape that until we're glorified with Christ in heaven. Now in this type of repentance, we don't repent because we're afraid that if, if, if we fail to repent, that we're going to lose our relationship with Christ. That can never happen. You can never Lose your relationship with Jesus Christ once you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Him. You can't lose that. But what you can lose is that daily fellowship that you have with God. And knowing that God is with you all of the time, you can lose the sense of that security. And Christ said, if you live that way, if you live without repentance in your Christian life, He said, I will come upon you as a thief. And whenever Jesus speaks of a thief in that way, He's speaking of judgment. And judgment is always bad. A Christian that sins and refuses to repent is in a precarious position. And I'm not talking about losing his salvation, but I'm talking about walking around every day with the prospect that an anvil will fall out of heaven on your head. And I'm talking about chastisement. That a Christian who will not repent is subject to chastisement. And if that chastisement is not there, then that person doesn't truly know the Lord. Because He always chastises His children to bring them back in repentance and faith. And so in the moment that He doesn't expect it, the thief shows up. And that's Christ in His judgment. A thief never announces Himself. And I'm telling you, that won't happen if you're not brought to repentance, if that doesn't happen, you have no assurance to count yourself among God's children. So God's children repent. They don't continue to live in sin. First John says that a Christian will not continue to live in sin. And so to this church, Jesus says, Your day is coming, and if you don't repent, I'll come shockingly, surprisingly, and judgment will fall on your head. And did you know that in that day, when that judgment comes, we will find out who are the truly saved and who are the lost. 
So you can trust the Word of God on this. You don't want to see that day. Judgment comes, it will be harsh, and you may not think it's fair. But God doesn't care if you think it's fair. He doesn't do anything to save your feelings. And so, Christian, if I wasn't living for the Lord, and if I wasn't repenting of my sin, I would be afraid for my family. I would be afraid for my finances. I would be afraid for my health. If I didn't live in repentance, I would be afraid for my life. Because the Scripture also says that there are some Christians that die because of disobedience. So it's best to live a life of repentance. When you know that you've sinned, get out of it. Get away from it as quickly as you can. And the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then look at how gracious that God is. The first sin that you commit, He could snuff your life out, couldn't He? He could take it away from you right now for that ungrateful attitude that you have for not serving Him after He's done so much. He could do that, but that's not what He does. He gives time to repent. You're living in God's grace, period. Like a lender who gives some time for a past due payment, God withholds the penalty for a time. But you don't want to let His grace period run out because that's His sure judgment. Reinforce, remember, and repent. Now finally, we come to this last question. Number three, who are the redeemed? There are some that are redeemed in this church. Verse number four, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There were some in this church that were still faithful, although it's apparent there were very few. They hadn't defiled their garments. Now that's a reference to purity, to purity morally and theologically. Some translations say here that they had not soiled their garments, and that's a perfectly acceptable translation. Defiling the garments is a symbol of disqualification from the Lord's service. Now, can you think of sin in this way? Sin is soiling. Spiritually speaking, it's like going to church in clothes that you wore while you were picking through the garbage dump last night. A few weeks ago, Jorge and Kyle came over and helped me to get rid of some pigeons that were roosting under the solar panels on my roof. And I'm telling you folks, that was a horrible mess up there. Uh, pigeons are flying rats. And if God made anything that was a mistake, that was it. He made pigeons because they're the devil's birds. So this was a very filthy job, getting up there trying to clean up all of that and fix it so the pigeons couldn't get back under. And when we were done, I was quick to take a shower and change my clothes before I went to church on Sunday. Not sure how Jorge handled the problem, but that's what I did. Um, you see, when a Christian gets around sin like that, he feels defiled. A few years ago, I went to Reno for a Bible conference. And this is a long story, so I'm just going to give you the short end of it. But at this conference, they, they set aside hotels for the uh, attendees of this conference, and those hotels were in casinos. And I was very, very uncomfortable with that. When I left my room, I had to go through the casino area. And every time that I did, I felt like, well, I've got to stop right here and go back and take another bath. Every time I walked through there. 
And, and it, was, it was a nasty feeling to be that close to that stench of cigarette smoke and alcohol and gambling and the perverse people that hang out there. And I would never do that again because that makes my skin crawl to be around that stuff. I mean, I passed by the casino 500 feet away on Wilfred Avenue. That's too close for me. That's Christians getting into sin when you get into that. So you don't touch those things with a 10-foot pole. Some in Sardis would not touch those things. And the Lord commended them for not soiling their lives with the enticements that others enjoy. They had not soiled their garments, but they walk with the Lord in white. White always stands for cleanliness. It stands for purity. Some in Sardis were worthy. Their works proved that they were worthy. Don't mistake it. Their works did not make them worthy, but they had works to show that they were obedient to Christ, to show they had repented, to show they had faith in Him and they obeyed His commandments. But there may be some of you who say you're Christians and you're missing this part. You have no works that prove you're worthy. Oh, you insist that you're saved, but you have no proof to back it up. Jesus does not call those types worthy. He says it's those that walk with Him, those that forsake the world, those that are doing something for Christ with their lives. They produce fruits, fruits of obedience. They will walk with Christ in white robes. He will clothe them in garments of righteousness. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. If you are obedient and unrepentant, there is no holiness and thus there is no proof that you are redeemed. Now, I want to take our last little bit of time to discuss verse number 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There are questions that arise about this verse. There are false doctrines that are taught because of this verse. Heretical doctrines are promoted because of this verse. And here's the question that always comes out of it. Can a person lose his salvation? Can he have his name erased from the book of life? Now pardon me if I speak very plainly. That is a stupid question. Someone said there's no stupid questions. Well, there is at least one Asking if you can lose your salvation after reading this verse is not really all that bright. But that's okay, because if that's in your mind and, and uh, you wonder about it, it's still alright, because there are very few that are theologically bright. I mean, that just happens across the board. R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled, Everyone's a Theologian. And you know that's true? Everybody's a theologian. Everybody's got some idea about God. There is no God. There is a God. We don't know who He is. We're agnostic about Him or whatever. We don't understand the doctrines. We can't know Him personally. Everybody has some kind of theology about God. And unfortunately, our theology of God is not really all that good. And so people will look at this and say, well, that verse is telling us it is possible to have your name blotted out of God's book of life and you can lose your salvation. Does it say that? It says exactly the opposite of that. He says, it says, 
for those who believe in Christ, they will not have their name blotted out of the book of life. Is that simple enough? They will not have their name blotted out. Who are these? These are the believers. These are the overcomers. This is a promise, not a warning. Jesus said, I will not do it. For who? Those that are worthy. Nobody else has their name in the book of life. It's only the worthy. And when were those names written in the book? Oh, that's another question, isn't it? It's the book of life. And when were those names written? We'll just turn a few pages over to 13, chapter 13, verse number 8. It'll tell you there. This describes the tribulation when the world will be turned to the worship of the Antichrist. And who is it that will worship the Antichrist? Verse number 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Lick your fingers and turn a few more pages to 17th chapter, verse number 8. And we have the same story and we have the same Antichrist in Revelation 17, 8. The beast, the Antichrist, that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. There, the Word of God says that His people, those who are His elect, have their names written in His book before the foundation of the world. And if your name is in that book, that is an infallible guarantee of your salvation. It's not your salvation because salvation must be obtained in time. Paul said in 2 Timothy, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the elect will obtain their salvation, and they prove that election, that they were the ones chosen by God. How? They repent of their sins, and they believe in Jesus Christ, and they follow His commandments, and that is the proof that they are God's people. It's our obedience to the Lord, our obedience to the Savior that proves we have been chosen by God, and that name is never going to be removed from the book of life. How could that name be removed? Christ's knowledge of His people stretches from eternity past to eternity future. God knows who will be saved. He wrote those names down. They'll never be erased because God makes no mistakes. Read Romans 8, 28-39 if you doubt salvation is forever. Now what about people, though, who say they're Christians and they're not? Is there anyone who can claim the promise that we read here if they're Christians or say they're Christians but they're not? What about this? If you have a church that's been filled up with people that have been drawn in by, by concerts and by bands and by fun and games and by social activities... What about those who are drawn to the church by entertainment, but they haven't been drawn by the Holy Spirit? There's no promise for them. The church that stands with the world rather than against the world gets something different. Let me show you what that is. There's a contrast. In Matthew 10, verse 32, this is the spiritual parallel to Revelation 3, 5. These people don't fear. They are safe and secure. Who are they? Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. The next verse is the contrast. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father 
which is in heaven. Is that enough warning? If you are denied by Jesus, then you have no one to stand good for your righteousness. Your sins are not paid for. You'll die in your sins and you'll go to hell to burn in the fires of hell in eternal separation from God. That is the consequence of unbelief. Now if you say that you're a Christian, but every day you walk around in soiled garments, then your salvation is not only subject, suspect rather, it is non-existent. You're not a Christian unless your works prove that you are. Otherwise, you will be rejected in the judgment. So who are the redeemed? These are the ones that have fruits of righteousness. And this is the question we must ask. What are your fruits? If I truly believe that, good, uh, that salvation, the proof of salvation is good works, then I'm going to be busy trying to find my works. I'll be busy searching my life to see, do I have these works that the Bible talks about? In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves? How that Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Jesus may come today. I thought I made that clear in the beginning. He may come today, and perhaps the condition of the church is such that He will say, I'm through. I'm through dealing with all these Wicked churches that are in the world who claim they know me, but they don't. I'm through. And so now the compliment of the redeemed is filled up. I've saved the last one that I'm going to save. And now I'm going to take my church out of the world. Are you going to be in the number that goes up with him? So I'll leave you with this thought from the Apostle John. You can turn a few pages towards the front of your Bible to 1 John 2, 3-5. through 5. And this is the criteria for determining if your faith is real. So you may say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have a faith that is real. Well, John gives us proofs to tell how do we know our faith is real. And this is what he says, 1 John 2, 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. Are you obedient? Do you keep the commandments? In your heart of hearts, you know the answer. Is that yes or is it no? I hope that you listen to the message of the Spirit. What God the Spirit of God says to the churches, your eternity depends on that. This is your question. This is the one that this, all this expository information is for, to bring it down. How does this apply to you and me? And this becomes your question. And your answer needs to be given correctly. Do you prove your love by showing that you keep Christ's commandments? Only you know the answer to that question. Do you know Him? Have you followed Him? Do you trust Him? Do you believe Him? Do you evidence that by good works in your life? That's the question that you need to answer to determine if you truly are a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You and Lord, we know there must be confession of our sin. Every day,
is a day of repentance for a Christian. We know, Lord, we can't live perfectly. We still have the old nature and we go day, day after day and we commit, we commit sin. We know that and we admit to that. And Lord, now we want you to cleanse us from that sin. As your word says that we, we will fall, but when we fall, we'll not be cast down because you will uphold us with your hand. And you do that through repentance and faith. And I just ask, Lord, if there's someone here today, a Christian who, who is walking away from you and is backsliding and keep getting deeper and deeper into sin, I just pray, Lord, you'd have them turn around right now, repent of that sin, give that up, and begin to follow you as they should. Because until they do, there is no, there is no assurance that they truly are your child. And then, Lord, we pray for those that may be here today that they don't know you as Savior. And they've heard a message today that in some way seems foreign to them. Maybe they came to hear something that sounded good and would lift their spirits and make them feel really good about themselves. Well, there's no one that can feel good about themselves when they see themselves in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Gender said in his reply, we've first got to have people deal with their sins and tell them about the consequences of those sins before they can ever understand the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We must be delivered from God's wrath. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to recognize sin, repent of sin, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Bless our church, Lord. We want to be a church that is alive, and we're only alive as we follow you. So help us to be that church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.